You are listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. Our State Attorneys General podcast series is hosted by former Deputy Attorney General of Virginia and Presidential Appointee at the U.S. Department of Commerce, Stephen Cobb. Through conversations with State Attorneys General, this series will dive into the importance and growing role of State Attorneys General while hearing firsthand on what they are working to accomplish in their communities. Welcome to Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, State Attorney's General Edition. My name is Stephen Cobb. I'm a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, co-chair of our State Attorney's General practice and former Deputy Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm so excited to have with us on this episode of the podcast, the Attorney General from the great state of Connecticut, General Tong. General Tong, welcome to the podcast. Stephen, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. And General, is one of the things that you and I um, have chatted about before, and one of the things that I've brought up on this podcast before is really the growing role that state attorneys general play across a variety of areas. And this is, can be not just policy leaders, but regulatory enforcement. I've often made the argument that I think state attorneys generals are really second to none when it comes on being on the front foot of both policy formulation and uh, regulatory enforcement. And I think industry, the private sector, and national politics continue to recognize that as we see state attorneys general take a large role in the president's cabinet and also in setting the national agenda. What do you attribute that growing role of state attorneys general over the last 5, 10, 15-ish years? So that's a great question. There are a million ways to answer it. I think a lot of people ask that question, you know, why are AGs so engaged? on so many issues. I think it's a structural one. And I think what you're seeing, not because of us, but because of current events is is sort of a masterclass in federalism. And what I mean by that, if, if I may nerd out for a second on the law and constitutional structure, people sometimes forget, I think, their seventh grade physics or maybe their 11th grade US history. You know, we're still a federation of 50 sovereign states. And, and the territories and the district. And we have retained our sovereignty, each of us. That's why Connecticut has a governor and a legislature and its own criminal laws and then an elected attorney general. And so because of that, we have delegated limited authority to the federal government to act on our collective behalf. But when the federal government fails to act, you know, when Congress is broken. And in many respects, I think all of us can agree that it is. And it fails to discharge its its basic obligations and duties like passing a budget, you know, funding the government. If it can't act, then the responsibility naturally devolves to the states and rests with the original building blocks of this country. And that is each and every state acting through its attorney general. And so I think what happened, I wasn't around when this happened. I might have been in high school or grade school what happened, but, uh, and I hope Senator Blumenthal doesn't take this the wrong way. But when when Senator Blumenthal was our attorney general, you know, nearly a, a generation ago, when he started out as AG, 
he was part of the team of attorneys general that brokered the national tobacco settlement after years and years of investigation and negotiation. And it is it is commonly referred to, as you know, Stephen, as the big bang of attorney general coordination and multi-state work. And that's when AGs across the aisle looked at each other and said, hey, wait a second. If I team up with Florida in Connecticut or New York or California or Tennessee, we can do a lot together. And once we figured that out, because there wasn't enough action in Washington on protecting kids from marketing by the major tobacco companies and because of the epidemic of youth smoking, state AGs said, hey, let's do this ourselves. We retain this authority. We're sovereign. We have the power to take this on. And they did. No, that's an excellent point. When I've taught a class on the role of state AGs for law students, I've used that exact moment when we're talking about the National Tobacco Settlement and asked them to discuss, and I'm taking a slightly far afield here, but whether it was a the growth and advent of technology that allowed AGs to better coordinate or a change in laws which allowed them to have a greater enforcement authority, in which was the larger impetus and the and the ability of state AGs to start to work together. And it's an interesting conversation because some can say, well, you know, you weren't exactly faxing each other briefs and having red line and circling, circulating them again. And so in one sense, being able to email allowed for that coordination. On the other hand, it was different laws being expanding consumer protection acts, which also fostered that strength. You know, I think it was a breakdown in Washington. You know, when when we grow up as kids, we we look to D.C. and say, hey, the president or Congress are going to do this and take care of us. Right. So I'll give you a couple of really important examples. Section 230. There's a huge debate right now about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And basically, Section 230, by most people's reckoning, provides a broad shield of liability for the technology industry, for big technology companies. And we can debate whether that supercharged a golden age of innovation and and whether it came at the cost of consumers and consumer safety. And that's the debate happening now around Section 230. The feeling about Congress, though, and Washington is that they're unable to address the issues around big tech companies, around consumer safety, around kids, right, on social media platforms. And that's why AGs are now having this conversation. That's why we have a nearly 50 state investigation of Instagram. Why? Because if Congress isn't going to act on it, then our constituents look to us and say, hey, rediscover your roots as a sovereign entity, right, as an agent of the sovereign state of Connecticut and the people of Connecticut and assert that authority to protect all of us. I think that's writ large what's happening. Let's break this down a little bit, because sometimes you're functioning for the citizens of Connecticut solely on issues affecting the citizens of your state. There's other times, as we've alluded to, when you're teaming up shoulder to shoulder with other other state attorney general from across the country. So kind of let's look back on 2021. And can you tell me some of the work that you've done first in Connecticut and then and also that you've taken a national scope for and work with some of your colleagues? I've already mentioned one. There's a lot of action around technology broadly. That breaks down into a number of areas. I think the area that is most 
active and recognizable to people is state attorney general work in the area of consumer data privacy and protecting everybody from data breaches. And so I doubt anybody listening to this podcast were spared in the Equifax data breach, for example. That was a huge one. And as a consumer affected by the Equifax data breach, you know, that was a huge wake-up call that one of our nation's principal credit reporting agencies could have a massive data breach. And so you see state AGs there. Connecticut is frequently a leader in that work because my predecessor started the very first privacy department in a state attorney general's office anywhere. And then, you know, beyond that, there are other data breaches, you know, like Home Depot and and Target, large corporate data breaches. And, And then, of course, things like Cambridge Analytica, which I guess isn't technically a data breach, but it was a mass compromise of consumer personal data and and information. And so there's that bucket. There's the consumer issues around social media and misinformation and disinformation around elections, around vaccines, you know, the harms that young people experience from the content online. And so you've seen a lot of action around Instagram, Meta, Facebook, TikTok. I've been particularly vocal about TikTok. And so we're all working together on those issues. I mentioned the Section 230 issues, and then there are antitrust issues. And there's a case pending now against Google. There was a case against Facebook that the FTC is still maintaining and that we are reinitiating as a community of states. A lot of this is done largely by all of us acting together. All of these cases that I've described or investigations have a majority of states involved. And, and on a nonpartisan, bipartisan basis. I'm particularly active in leading a number of initiatives around medicine, pharmaceuticals, drugs, and drug pricing. I am leading the National Generic Drug Price Fixing Case, which is more or less 50 state territories and the district coalition taking on the generic drug industry for what we believe was brazen and overt price fixing and violations of our antitrust laws. That's been going on for a number of years. That predates me as attorney general, and I've been very privileged to pick up the ball from attorney general Jepson. The other area that inside attorney general community watchers know about is our work, Connecticut's work on opioids. I've been particularly active first in the settlement with the three major drug distributors, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson, and Johnson & Johnson, a settlement that was originally announced at $18 billion, And then with the intervention of Connecticut and a number of other states, that settlement then swelled to $26 billion. And then apart from that, I've been very active as part of a greater community of AGs who have sued Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. I'm sure there's hardly any listener who hasn't either seen Dope Sick or Red Empire of Pain or know what's going on around lawsuits in the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma. But I am part of the leadership of a group of nine dissenters who voted against the plan of reorganization in the bankruptcy court of Purdue Pharma. We appealed that plan and that plan was vacated 
And so now we have been compelled to mediation. I can't say anything more than that, but the nine of us were able to stop that plan from being confirmed. And hopefully that will lead to a, a more just result. As you know, Stephen, in cases like this, particularly when there is widespread loss of life and and the damage cannot be measured, both in terms of the cost to human beings and their families, but the, the financial cost, there's never enough money you know, to compensate or to address the toll that a crisis like this takes on states like Connecticut and Virginia and across the country. And there's not enough justice that can bring back a lost daughter, son, father, mother. And so you do the best you can. People often ask you, well, how much is enough? Well, there's no, there's no book, right? There's no formula about what's enough. Keep pushing until you think you've delivered as much justice as you can produce for victims and families and their survivors. I would be remiss since you mentioned uh, Dopesick that it also includes a portrayal of one of my current law partners, John Brownlee, the good works that he did in this space while he was U.S. attorney for the Western yeah. District of Virginia. Yeah. And you'll see a little cameo in the last minute. <laughs> with Michael funny. Deaton. Yeah. Well, we touched on a few different subject matter areas, so I want to unpack those just a little bit. First, when we talked about data privacy, one of the debates going around, not just the state AG community, but I think the data privacy in general and in Washington, D.C., is the standards that are used in data privacy, both for reporting, both in best efforts at prevention. We keep seeing new data privacy acts pop up. First, it was California, Virginia, Vermont. Where do you see this space going? Do you, do you see national standards coming into play here in the, in the future? And if not, what's the best way to reconcile so many disparate not, standards coming up from state to state? Not to be so flip, but if only we could expect national standards, that might, that might make life a little more straightforward for most of us. Not simple. It'll never get simple. This will never be simple. But it's the absence of national standards that's so difficult to contend with. So for listeners, right, uh, I've, had to, I've had to learn so much about not just data privacy, but, but approaches to privacy broadly. There's the European approach, which basically regards personal data as property and, and you know, something that people can have a property right in, which I think is the philosophical underpinning of the GDPR, which is the European construct, legal structure for data privacy. And then the opposite view, I guess you would say, in the US, which treats data and personal information in many cases as a commodity. And there's a huge debate about what is the right approach and you know how it impacts growth and innovation and technology and our economy and it's very challenging because you've got these two seemingly opposing views of the world and then you've got California doing its thing with the CCPA and then people outside of California say we need to do something but we don't want to do California so this is because the standards have not been set and i don't have any confidence that Congress will do that. And so what's the answer? I suppose there'll be a period and Connecticut is part of this where we'll do our own thing and we'll continue to strengthen our own 
data privacy laws here at home, and then there may be some uniform laws or some conventions among the states that arise out of that, but we're not there yet. How much of this do you think, and I hate to use the term tail wagging the dog, but I mean, are we headed to a, a place where the state with the most stringent data privacy laws is just going to end up setting national standards for anyone who's doing you know, national or cross-state work? That's part of it, and that could happen. I think even though it is hard to conceive of a bigger data breach than, say, a data breach of one of the largest credit reporting bureaus in our country, you and I both know from a policymaking, lawmaking perspective, often something really bad has to happen, right, before real substantive action is taken, either at the congressional level or, you know, in state legislatures. And so maybe we're not at that point yet. There hasn't been an event that catalyzed that work. But until then, we're going to continue to bump along, right? And drift, I think you're right, towards one pole or the other. When I say pole, I mean a magnetic right. pole, right? Like one, maybe one extreme yeah. or the other. Right. So commodity versus individual ownership. Yeah. Right. The, if there were easy answers, we wouldn't have even asked right. the question, right? One of the things that you alluded to when you were talking about some of the different areas of the last year that you've been involved, some of you categorized as areas that you were taking a leadership role in, some of you talked about things that every state was involved in. To the extent you can answer, what are some of the things that go into the calculus of when you decide of, okay, this is something that I want to be on the that leadership committee with, this is something that I want to lead, versus others where it's I'm gonna be I'm gonna be part of a team, but I'm gonna, you know, step back and let so and so this team of three or five other states take the lead? That's easy. The number one objective criteria, lodestar for me is this is important to the people of my state, you know, and if it's important to Connecticut, if it either originates in Connecticut, arises from Connecticut, or it has a disparate impact on people in my state, that compels me to action. So I'll give you a good example. People ask me, Attorney General Tong, Purdue Pharma is based in your home city of Stamford, Connecticut, and the Sacklers live in and around your community. What does that mean to you? And I say, I believe that it means I have a special obligation to be aggressive, which people don't expect. They expect maybe I'd be a home stater and not be as aggressive. I think it means I have to be extra aggressive, number one. And number two is we're a small, hard hit state. Uh, by this crisis. And so there are other states that by their own admission have not had the same challenges that we or New Hampshire, right, or Vermont have had with the opioid addiction crisis. And so this is really important to us and to families in Connecticut. We have lost so many people and, and frankly, the economic impact is staggering. So that's number one. Close number two is You have to pick your spots to really make an impact in the multi-state world. So when you become attorney general today, right? I became attorney general in 2019. You walk into a totally different landscape than Dick Blumenthal or Joe Lieberman, right? Joe Lieberman was Connecticut's first full-time attorney general, believe it or not. You know, back then, you didn't walk into 
uh, a multi-state environment like this, where everybody is contributing and is expected to contribute, and there really aren't any limits on what we can focus on. I mean, there are jurisdictional, substantive, you know, limits on what causes of action we can bring, where we can bring them, but basically, very few people conceive of our jurisdiction or ambit as being limited or circumscribed. I think people think that AGs can look at and address every problem. Now, I, I don't think In that. my experience, I, most AGs think that they, they can get yeah, involved every problem. I was just about to, <laughs> I was about to hang a caveat. I don't believe that because I know that our authority is in each state either clearly prescribed or circumscribed, right, and limited. And, and it is, and so it is in Connecticut. I don't have criminal jurisdiction, for example, right? That's a big one, but some AGs do. Peter Nerona of, of Rhode Island has both, civil and criminal jurisdiction. So there's this expectation that we can do everything and anything. And so you have to be judicious about where you weigh in, because otherwise it's overwhelming and you can't possibly do everything. So one of the things I look to is, has Connecticut established itself as a leader in this X area, right? Is it seen as a traditional resource or leader on a particular subject? So I think if you think about Connecticut, we're known to be very strong in privacy, data privacy. We're known to be very strong in antitrust matters. We're now, you know, recognized as a leader in pharmaceutical-related litigation, uh, including the opioid and addiction crisis. So, for example, why did I why did I weigh in so forcefully on the distributor settlement with uh, Amerisource Bergen Cardinal M. McKesson? And the reason why is because George Jepson, as Attorney General, my predecessor, was the one who said we ought to look at the distributors and. You know, with all due respect to my colleagues, some people have a different recollection of how it all went down, but I know that George came up with it. And it's my job as the Connecticut Attorney General to continue his work, in, uh, which was very effective, and to take on that responsibility, which I did. So Connecticut, I am very proud to say, we're not big, 3 million people. We're, you know, a coastal state in New England, so you know, some would say not broadly reflective of other parts of the country, but A, I would quarrel with that. Number one, we have a very diverse state that does reflect uh, other parts of the country, but we are, we're often seen in AG world as punching well above our weight. And I take that responsibility very seriously, that that's what people look to Connecticut AGs for. Dick Blumenthal, a legend. Joe Lieberman, a legend. George Jepson, not quite as vocal as those two, but a co-chair of DAGA, the Democratic Attorneys General Association, and, an, and a president of the National Association of Attorneys General. And so, you know, George was, is a force among AGs. And so, frankly, that's a lot to carry sometimes, but I guess that's why I get up in the morning. There you go. So we're looking ahead to the rest of 2022. We've talked in some of the, the big issues from 2021, but looking into your crystal ball, where do you see uh, this year going with, with, with state AGs? Any particular issues in, in industries or more of an expansion of so, some of the stuff we've already hit on? So 
like a lot of your listeners and a lot of your colleagues, Connecticut needs to figure out how to emerge from the pandemic stronger than it entered the pandemic. And one of the challenges is how do we put our economy and our workplaces back together again? And I am very proud to lead the largest law firm in Connecticut and trying to navigate a world in which people, you and I are doing it right now. You know, we interact by Zoom, we build relationships over Zoom, right? We collaborate over Zoom, we work together over Zoom, and yet it's not perfect, right? And and we lose something by not being together. So how do you get people back together while retaining some of what we have discovered during the pandemic? And, And I must tell you, that takes up a lot of my time. And it takes up, I think, a lot of the administrative time of my colleagues, if they're honest about what they need to focus on. You know, beyond that, I know that's not terribly sexy. I There are some really interesting things happening in Connecticut that are happening across the country. The question about healthcare provider consolidation, i.e. hospital mergers, right, is increasingly a challenge in Connecticut and across the country. There's a there's an antitrust suit that has been filed by St. Francis Hospital, a Catholic hospital in Connecticut, venerable institution. It has sued Hartford Healthcare, which runs Hartford Hospital and has become a large behemoth in the healthcare space. And there are allegations of anti-competitive conduct. And again, Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Narona just refused to approve a hospital merger in Rhode Island. And so you're seeing this happen across at least our two states, and I think across the country, this question of what do you do about the increased concentration of power in healthcare providers, hospital systems, some of which are nonprofits, right? And what do you do about potential or allegations of prejudice to individual doctors and nurses and practices? And what is the impact on patients? I expect that to be a huge issue going forward in Connecticut and across the country as people try to figure that out. Is that something that you foresee working in tandem with your federal counterparts? Or do you see that being more of an AG-led issue? I think it is more of an AG led issue because although I, I, there obviously are systems that operate across states in larger hospital and healthcare entities. These are largely local questions, right? About because hospitals are the quintessential brick and mortar boots on the ground institutions, right? And so what do you do in Connecticut about you know, Wyndham Hospital or Sharon Hospital. We're having a big debate about maternity care at those two hospitals or Yale New Haven Health and their announced acquisition of Waterbury Hospital. And so I think these are local issues. I do think that there will be multi-state, at least cooperation among state attorneys general because the issues replicate themselves in other states. Although every state's regulatory regime is different, the issues are largely the same. So I just, it's one of those things that I think is just not going to go away. One of the things that I try and ask guests who have been so kind to lend their time on the podcast is what are some tips for folks who want or need to engage with your office, either from the citizen side who want to reach out about something that's a going concern, 
or on, you know, the corporate private sector side who might, you know, find their business or business model under the ambit of the regulatory oversight and enforcement from state AGs. Any suggestions or things? So, so from the citizen perspective, that's easy, you know, know how to get in touch with your attorney general, know what their authority is. And I don't mean read the statute books. I mean, just generally understand in Connecticut, if I have a criminal complaint, I shouldn't call William. Right. Because William doesn't have that power. I should call my local police or the state's attorneys. But, you know, if you are concerned about the issue I just talked about, healthcare consolidation, well, if you know I'm working on it and you have something to share, you should reach out. And it's easy enough to go on a website and send an email or or a complaint or a complaint form. And we look at every single one, you know, and if there's something there, we will definitely take action, take a look at it. I think to folks who are wondering about state attorneys general in you have a business or you have an initiative or or you're part of an industry and you're wondering how, whether to in, engage with state attorneys general, the, the answer is yes, yes, and yes, do engage. And don't think that if you don't engage that somehow problems are going to go away. They won't. And, and the reason why is because, as I said earlier, our constituents, the people to whom we are accountable, the people that vote for me, and the people that don't vote for me, by the way, they expect that I'm going to take strong and aggressive action, protect them and their families. And it is hard to conceive of an industry in which there's not some issue that people are concerned about, right? Some public safety issues, some health and security issue, some consumer protection issue. You know, if you're a wedding venue in Connecticut, you could not have thought that, well, when the pandemic rolled around, you would get a call from the state attorney general's office. But you did. Why? Because people's weddings got canceled, right? And they put down five, 10, 20 grand or more as a deposit on their wedding. And then when they couldn't hold their wedding because of COVID restrictions, they were out all that money and they called the attorney general's office. And that is bare bones, you know, basic blocking and tackling for an attorney general, right? And consumer protection. So there are some industries, some companies, big ones that have decided, I'm just not gonna engage because a bunch of AGs have said bad things about us and we don't like that. And we're gonna take our ball and go home. Good luck with that. You know, because state AGs are not going anywhere. If it's not me, it'll be somebody else. And they'll have the same authority and they'll have the same constituents saying, are you going to do something about that? And the answer is always, yeah, I am going to do something about that. It's hardly ever no. (laughs) So I think. So engage early and often. Yeah. Even if you, there are a number of big companies, for example, in the pharmaceutical space, with whom I have active pending litigation investigations. That, that doesn't mean we don't talk. That doesn't mean we don't have a relationship. As we, we start to kind of wind down our chat a bit, I always, when I have the opportunity to have an attorney general on the podcast, I've always liked to ask from a couple of things that come up on their Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. And so when, uh, when General Ford was on, I talked to him about his caning display. His, his fraternity does kind of a, a dance that involves a cane and he was challenging General Raul to do the same dance. When General Nessel was on, I, I asked her about so many things on Twitter. 
Shit, <laughs> when she was a good sport in answering, including uh, the I'm PSAs. only laughing for for the listeners because yeah. General Nestle is a is a Twitter prodigy. Oh yeah, I mean her PSA skits are informative and hilarious. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners about what is a tong tasting? A tong tasting is when the attorney general gets hungry and he's crisscrossing the great state of Connecticut and he sees he sees a sign, right? For example, and and the sign is a big cartoon drawing slash billboard of a pig's head. And it says, no axe meat products. And you know, it's like the it's like the heavens open up and the seas part. And I look at it and I was like, I gotta go check out no axe meat products. And sure enough, no axe meat products is one of my favorite places in Connecticut. It's a butcher with um, fresh made sausage products, mostly Polish and German sausage. So my favorite is half veal, half pork bratwurst. Eat it all summer long. You know, they're hot dogs. They're Italian sausage, hot and sweet. Amazing. And so that's what I do often. I'm driving around Connecticut because that's what the attorney general does. I go to this event or that event, have this meeting or speak at, you know, that group, this school. And then in between, I got to eat because, you know, it takes a lot to power this train. And so I will stop in at a no axe meat products or a road food place, or, you know, my specialty of course is ethnic food, especially Asian food. And when I get there, sometimes I'm with some some local leader or personality and we'll highlight, you know, for example, the Glenwood, one of my favorite road food places uh, in Hamden, Connecticut, or New Haven Pizza, best pizza on earth. <laughs> oh, I, I don't want to get back into the what state has the best pizza. Uh, it's not even close. General Nestle weighed in on Detroit close. style as well. It's it's, all, it's, close. It's, it's it's a bit of a thing. I've also noticed some some home culinary additions to the song tastings, but it is one of your Twitter staples, and so I always wanted to ask. <laughs> gotta have you know, gotta be well nourished to do this job. There you go, General. You've been so incredibly generous with your time. But before I sign off, I wanted to give you a chance if there's something that you wanted to highlight that your office is up to or that's going on in Connecticut. And I wanted to make sure you had that opportunity. I just want to say. This is an incredible, for anybody wondering, it's an incredible opportunity, honor to be an attorney general. I can hardly think of five lawyer jobs I'd rather have in the world. And I bet if you ask my colleagues, they would say the same thing. And so I'm very grateful for the people of our state, the people of Connecticut who have given me the opportunity to serve them in the state in which I was born. The first American in my family, it, it means the world to me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for your service. My name is Stephen Cobb. This has been Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast series, our State Attorney's General Edition. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.